Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. On Christmas Day in 1991, the Soviet flag was lowered over the Kremlin for the last time. Thereafter, it was replaced by the Russian tricolour. Earlier that day, Mikhail Gorbachev had resigned his post as president of the Soviet Union, leaving Boris Yeltsin as president of the newly independent Russian state. People all over the world watched in amazement at the peaceful transition from the former communist monolith into multiple separate nations. Over the next few years, Yeltsin and his team embarked on a course of reforms known as economic shock therapy, aiming to transform the Russian economy by selling off state assets. While most Russian citizens lost all of their savings in just a few weeks, a group of enterprising and often ruthless young businessmen managed to buy up state assets, often in rigged auctions. The result was huge wealth concentrated in the hands of a few men whose fortunes were closely tied to those of President Yeltsin. And together they ran the country. This is how the nickname oligarch came about. It comes from the Greek oligarchy, meaning rule by the few. The profound changes of the economic shock therapy had extreme effects in Russia and left many Russians entirely disoriented. Their country was no longer a great world power. The economy had shrunk to the size of Poland's. Doctors found themselves moonlighting as cab drivers. In 1992, the first year of economic reform, retail prices in Russia increased by 2,600%. By 1993, inflation had declined to 240%. It fell again in 1994 to 224%. The worst off were the elderly, whose fixed pensions didn't even begin to cover the new cost of living. By 1999, almost 38% of Russia's population were living below the poverty line. Those who had set aside savings had almost nothing to show for it after the 26-fold inflation of 1992. Anatoly Chabai, a minister in Yeltsin's government, was put in charge of privatisation. He initially advocated following the privatisation model that had been used in Hungary. The Russian Congress rejected this approach and the voucher privatisation scheme like the one used in the Czech Republic was decided upon. Under the Soviet Union, there was no private property. Everything had been owned by the state. Part of the idea of this rapid privatisation was that if the Russian people owned assets, they would be invested in the success of the new country and communist rule would not return. Chubai, who designed and oversaw this privatisation, became Yeltsin's chief of staff. In 1996, he gave a then-unknown Vladimir Putin his first job in the Kremlin. So let's look at how privatisation worked in Russia and how the Russian oligarchs became so rich. 
The Russian oligarchs are sometimes erroneously compared with the 19th century American robber barons, but this is not a reasonable comparable, as the robber barons grew their empires by building steel mills, railroads and refineries in the rapidly growing and developing United States. Russia's oligarchs, on the other hand, built nothing. Their wealth and influence came from taking control of existing enterprises that had previously been owned by the state. The oligarchs had varying backgrounds. Some were factory managers who, during Russia's transition, were given shares of the factory, but who also forced their employees to sell them their shares in the once state-owned companies. Others were senior government officials who saw the opportunity available and took advantage of it, while yet others were underground businessmen and ex-convicts on the margins of society, all shared a thirst for money and political power. They understood the importance of establishing or maintaining connections to the Russian political elite in a country where the rule of law was frequently trumped by the rule of in-laws. Today, a handful of oligarchs control 85% of the value of Russia's leading companies. They have significant financial interests outside of Russia, including the super yachts and mansions, which have increasingly put them in the spotlight as Western countries, in an effort to end Russia's war against Ukraine, have imposed severe financial sanctions on them, including on Putin himself. Okay, so Anatoly Chabai and his team who oversaw Russia's privatization after the fall of the Soviet Union decided that in order to prevent the utter destruction of Russia's industrial infrastructure and a possible communist resurgence, they had to create widespread public support for their reforms. Thus, they decided the best approach would be to issue a share of stock or a voucher to every Russian citizen and in that way transform not only the workers and management, but the public at large into stakeholders as well as stockholders in the country's industry. As direct owners and beneficiaries of a portion of Russia's now private enterprises, the public would hopefully resist efforts to renationalize what would now be their property. The idea was that privatization would not just create stakeholders, it would more importantly lead to the efficient running of the Russian economy. Resources would be allocated in a productive manner and decisions would be made for economic rather than political reasons. Property owners and investors in Russia were expected to act like their counterparts in other market economies. They were expected to behave like homo economicus and respond rationally to financial incentives. Another key assumption was that with the existence of property rights, both the Russian state and society in general would make sure that those rights were enforced. This unfortunately didn't hold up in the condition of near-anarchy that Russia was in in the early 1990s. The architects of Russian privatization were aware of the dangers of these problems at the time, but they predicted that institutions would come into being as soon as private property was created, rather than it being necessary to put these institutions in place to begin with. Now, there's no guarantee that a slower, more methodical approach to privatization, moving from stone to stone as was done in China, would have brought about a better outcome. 
But the sudden transition after 70 years of Soviet central planning meant that neither the Russian people nor the government institutions were prepared for the chaos that ensued. To understand the level of confusion in Russia at the time, people who lived in apartments which were initially all state-owned were hesitant at first to accept ownership of their apartments, even when the state handed out ownership free of charge. They were worried about taking on the responsibility of having to pay for the maintenance of common hallways and roofs, which up until then were the responsibility of the government. Factory managers and employees were often slow to take on ownership of the businesses they had worked for. They knew how inefficient the businesses were and equally how reliant they were on government contracts. The Soviet economy's focus on the production of military hardware meant that not many of these factories would be viable without government contracts and an ongoing arms race. These people weren't fools, but after 70 years of being told that financial assets like shares of stock were worthless pieces of paper distributed by capitalists to create the illusion of wealth, most Russians had no idea of how much these businesses might be worth. I should note that during Soviet times, except for the sale of food grown in your own garden, all private business activity was prohibited. If you broke these laws, you were charged with an economic crime, and depending on the scale of the crime, the punishment could be as severe as death. Now, despite these risks, there was still a black market during Soviet times. A particularly popular item to import and sell was blue jeans from America. Other black marketeers engaged in foreign exchange and still others provided private services and repairs. Most of the people involved in these illegal endeavours were members of non-Russian ethnic groups who were already excluded from mainstream positions of authority within the Communist Party, the military or even as factory managers. These people who were already living outside the law and had some business experience were quicker than the average Russian to realise that if nothing else, some of the working capital and equipment within Russian businesses could be stripped and resold. If that didn't work, they could always find some benefit in selling or leasing some of the underlying land. In 1989, shortly before the fall of the Soviet Union, President Gorbachev had authorised the leasing of state factories to their employees during off-peak hours. Most Russians did not participate in this opportunity at the time, mostly out of the fear that the law would be changed back and they would be accused of economic crimes. But by the time Gorbachev left office, almost 30,000 of these leases had been arranged and the people most willing to take on this opportunity were also the people who had gained business experience in the black market. So privatisation happened quickly in Russia and one of the first steps was to dispose of the state's small shops and restaurants. By late 1995, 60% of the country's retail stores had been privatised and for the most part turned over to the staff who had previously operated them, often at no charge. This worked out well for small Russian business people who could continue to make a living but who by no means became ultra-wealthy. 
Another way that privatization worked at the time was that managers who had leased factories under Gorbachev's 1989 rule were allowed to buy them at the capitalized value of their annual lease payments. Now, the leases had been struck in 1989, prior to the 26-fold hyperinflation that occurred in 1992, so this was a great deal for those who could take it. So far, this doesn't sound so bad, right? Now, the overall approach to Russian privatization was rooted in the idea that the land should go to the tiller. And this makes some sense. After all, these people would be the most capable of running these businesses and managing their assets. So employees and directors of businesses were thus entitled to a substantial share of their enterprise's assets under the privatization scheme. Once they had been taken care of, the remaining share would be divided up amongst the general Russian population. This was done to ensure support not only from the company insiders, but also from the average man on the street. It was to be a form of people's capitalism. There were three main variants of privatization. Under Variant 1, managers and regular employees were to be provided with 25% of the enterprise's non-voting shares free of charge. A manager could also buy another 5% of the voting shares at book value, as well as an additional 10% more of the voting shares at a 30% discount. Under this system, the staff would be able to control 15% of the voting and 25% of the non-voting stock. Then whatever was not claimed would be offered to the public at auction by the property fund, which could also buy some of the shares for itself. Now, management weren't crazy about Variant 1, as if they controlled only 15% of the voting shares, they could easily be fired by public shareholders and replaced. Under Variant 2, the workforce was allowed to purchase 51% of the enterprise shares before those shares were made available to the public. Thus, as long as the staff remained united, no outside buyers could take control. Variant 2 allowed the factory directors to take control and effective ownership of most of the country's factories at minimal cost to themselves, as well as offering minimal benefit to the public at large. This was the most widely adopted variant, and around 75% of enterprises were privatised under Variant 2. The managers were able to take up their own shares and also buy up the shares and vouchers of their employees, who sometimes sold them voluntarily, but were often coerced and threatened. A follow-up 1992 law added Variant 3, which provided up to 20% of a company's shares to the staff at no charge. If they wanted more, they could buy another 20% at a discount of 30%. Now, because Variant 2 was so much more advantageous, less than 5% of the firms being privatised chose Variant 3. A big problem with privatisation in Russia that made it very different to, for example, Margaret Thatcher's privatisations that occurred in the UK around the same time was that Russia didn't have a middle class with savings who could buy newly issued stock and whatever savings that the average Russian did have were wiped out by the massive inflation. Additionally, there were no Russian institutional investors available to buy up the newly issued securities. The only people who had any substantial capital at the time were members of the Russian mafia 
government officials and factory directors who had been treating enterprise assets as their personal property. Some of these enterprise directors even combined their funds to create commercial banks. These banks could then provide loans to their owners to finance their personal purchases of stock. But one way or another, there was very little money available in Russia at the time, so these assets were going to be sold cheap, and they would most likely go to political insiders and mafia. It's estimated that the Russian state collected a mere $160 million during the first three years of privatization, in which they sold off the immensely valuable natural resources of the largest country in the world. Now, the big money was not made by buying up small businesses. Massive fortunes were made overnight by those who bought up Russia's natural resources monopolies. These companies owned vast, valuable and most importantly, exportable raw materials like petroleum and natural gas, metal mines and so on. It didn't matter if the refineries or the mines were inefficient or if the pipelines barely worked. Oil and gas, aluminium, platinum, palladium, titanium and steel were valuable tradable commodities that could be grabbed for next to nothing in Russia if you were ruthless enough. The people who became oligarchs realised that if they could take control of these assets, they would rank amongst the wealthiest people on earth. And since payment for exportable goods would come from overseas purchasers, these funds were easily kept outside of Russia, safely out of reach of the government. Now, as you saw, though, the goal of privatization was to include the general public in the giveaway. But how do you divide up a country's industrial, commercial and natural resource wealth amongst the general population? Well, what they did is they calculated the value of these assets and divided that up by the number of citizens in the country. They then issued each citizen with vouchers worth their proportionate share. The idea being that once the managers and workers had bought up their shares, the remaining ownership would be offered to the voucher holders in public auctions. Using very conservative estimates, they calculated that the face value of each voucher should be set at 10,000 rubles. Now, assigning this stated value to the vouchers turned out to be a big mistake. Inflation was eating away at the value of the ruble, so that rather quickly 10,000 rubles was worth only around 25 US dollars. Voucher holders often sold their vouchers for less than $10 or exchanged them for a bottle of vodka. Russians viewed the 10,000 ruble voucher as an insult They'd been told that their country had the second largest GNP in the world, and then they were given a token for their share of it, which was only worth 10,000 rubles. Just like after the various currency reforms that they'd been subjected to since the Second World War, the Russian people once again saw themselves as the victims of another scam. Boris Yeltsin announced the voucher program in August 1992, and 98% of the Russian population did end up getting a voucher. The voucher holders were offered a number of options. Because the vouchers were not registered to any one individual, you could just sell them to someone else, or you could exchange them for stock in the newly privatized enterprises. In no time at all, 
all sorts of fraudulent schemes were set up to get these vouchers from the general public. Over 600 voucher funds were set up where Russians could deposit their vouchers, often with the promise of high rates of return. Some promoters took out television adverts showing the beach holidays you would be taking once the scheme had made you rich. Within months, almost half of the schemes had collapsed, leaving their shareholders with nothing to show for their original vouchers. Many of the investments were Ponzi schemes, and in other cases, the founders simply took the vouchers and ran off with them. A major problem with the way privatization was done in Russia was that since the state owned all of the means of production under communism, Soviet planners had assumed that they could gain economies of scale through huge state-owned monopolies. They called it gigantomania. When these huge monopolies were privatized, they weren't broken up. This meant that there was no incentive for their new owners to run the businesses more efficiently than they had been before, as there was no competition. The new privately owned monopolies of the 1990s were no more efficient than they had been under state ownership. It's no surprise then that the Russian economy contracted by nearly 50% between 1991 and 1997. Social dysfunction quickly followed with a dramatic rise in poverty, corruption and capital flight. Okay, so who were the oligarchs? Well, there were three main categories of Russian oligarch that emerged in the early 1990s. Former factory managers, former senior Communist Party members and the black marketeers who had previously been on the margins of Soviet society. The most common of the new Russians, as they were also called, were the factory and business managers who were able to acquire most of their enterprise's shares. In some cases, they bought up shares cheaply from their employees. In other cases, they coerced their employees to sell them their shares with threats of violence or unemployment. Some of these guys joined together to create regional banks, which were then used as personal loan funds to provide the money they needed to buy up the workers' shares. These people often became very wealthy, but nothing like the other two groups. The second category of oligarchs were the former members of the communist elite. These officials arranged for the transformation of many state enterprises into non-state joint stock companies and then appointed themselves as managing officers. On the surface, this may not seem very different from the factory directors we just discussed. The difference, however, is that these former party members were able to gain control of Russia's rich natural resource monopolies, even if at least for a while the state retained a significant equity ownership. These oligarchs worked out that the state could mostly be ignored or easily worked around. As a result, the executives of these newly and partially privatized companies often ended up amongst the country's richest oligarchs. Chubai, the architect of the privatization program, is a good example. He initially built up his personal wealth by providing services for some of the oligarchs, and in the spring of 1998, he arranged to have himself appointed CEO of Russia's dominant electrical utility. The last group were the black marketeers, many of whom had been in prison for economic crimes during the Soviet era. 
This group were cutthroat businessmen who had the necessary experience and the ruthlessness to operate in the chaotic economic and social conditions of Russia in the early 1990s. A typical first step amongst this group was to create a business cooperative, which was often just a cover for an earlier underground operation. The profits from the cooperative provided the capital needed to open a bank, since the capital requirements for opening a bank at the time were small, around $75,000. These banks then underwrote loans to their directors, financing the purchase of former state-owned enterprises that were being privatized. Many of these banks went under in 1998, but not before being stripped for assets by their founders. In 1995, the government adopted a loans-for-shares scheme, whereby some of the largest state industrial assets were leased through auctions for money lent by banks to the government. The loans-for-shares program was intended to help the government fund a shortfall, as the government was not collecting nearly enough tax revenue to cover its expenditures. The government borrowed money from oligarch-owned banks, and as collateral for the loans, the government put up shares of stock in some of the valuable companies that it still controlled. The banks agreed that if the loans were not repaid, the government would still benefit because the banks would auction off the stock, and if the stock sold for more than the loan value, the excess would be returned to the government. That sounds pretty fair, right? Well, no one was surprised when in almost every case, the auctions turned out to be a total charade. The banks holding the collateral and conducting the auctions always emerged as the auction winner at surprisingly low prices. Other bidders who turned up on the day of the auction would find that the airport at the site of the auction was closed for that day, or that they were disqualified for bidding for one reason or another. Noralisk Nickel, which reported profits of $1.5 billion in the year 2000, was bought for $170 million a few years earlier in one of these auctions. The looting in Russia was not limited to the privatization process either. For almost a decade, the state, which did own significant chunks of many of the largest monopolies, received little, if nothing, in the way of dividends or return on their shares. The oligarchs had all sorts of tricks. For example, Gazprom was 38% owned by the Russian government. The management set up a number of offshore sub-companies that were allegedly owned by their relatives. Gazprom would sell gas to these companies at, let's say, $2 per thousand cubic meters, a loss for Gazprom. And that company would then sell the same gas on the market for $80 per thousand cubic meters, providing huge profits to the company's mysterious owners, whoever they might be. When Yeltsin stood aside in 2000 and Vladimir Putin became president, it looked like things would carry on in the same vein, and initially they did. But in 2003, it became clear that the rules had changed. At the time, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was the wealthiest man in Russia and the 16th wealthiest man in the world. In February 2003, in a televised meeting at the Kremlin, Khodorkovsky argued with Putin about corruption. 
He implied that major government officials were accepting millions in bribes. Five months later, he was accused of tax evasion, sent to jail for the next 10 years, and stripped of his wealth. From that point on, the oligarchs knew that they could only maintain their positions if they didn't interfere in politics and if they stayed on the right side of Putin. A new type of oligarch began to emerge under Putin's rule. These men came from the security services or from law enforcement, where they had been close to Putin in the past. And they began taking over from the old oligarchs, whose wealth was in some cases expropriated to form new business empires. Russian experts say that these oligarchs now follow a set of rules set by Putin. When the Kremlin asked for help constructing the venues for the Sochi Olympics, the oligarchs stepped up building ports, airports and ski resorts using their own money. They perform various functions for the state when asked and in return they're allowed to make fortunes in Russia. The 2014 Sochi Olympics was a turning point for the Russian oligarchs. No sooner was it over than Russia invaded Ukraine, annexing Crimea. Sanctions followed, falling on both Russia and the Russian oligarchs. The 2022 invasion of Ukraine meant even stricter sanctions, putting the oligarchs' wealth at further risk. Most visibly, we've seen yachts worth hundreds of millions of dollars being seized, property owned by the oligarchs outside Russia being frozen and the Chelsea Football Club being put up for sale. The fortunes made in the intense corruption of the 1990s and in the crony capitalism of the Putin years does still exist on paper, but it's becoming increasingly difficult for the oligarchs to access. While business people often became very wealthy in other transition countries, the emergence of a business oligarchy was unique to Russia. The business elites in other transition economies were not able to or allowed to seize as much control of industrial ministries, factories or natural resources as they were in Russia. Quite distinct from elsewhere, startup businesses were actively discouraged in Russia, meaning that the newly privatized state enterprises encountered very little competition from new businesses, and they had no need to improve, innovate or modernize. They were just cash cows to be milked. A survey of the richest 100 Polish businessmen after the fall of communism revealed that unlike in Russia, most of the wealthy Poles built their fortunes from new startups. Similarly with the economic reforms in China, non-government startup companies became the main driver of economic growth. Had China been as restrictive of competition as Russia, their economy would likely be where Russia's is today. Another reason that Russia's economic reforms performed so poorly compared to Poland's may be down to the fact that Poland is relatively poor in natural resources, while Russia is incredibly rich. Other than coal mines, Poland had much less to steal or much less rent to seek. With all of its natural gas, oil and metals, there was a lot available to steal in Russia. Certainly there were other factors, but with all of that wealth suddenly set aside for the taking, 
there were a small number of perceptive Russians who saw what was happening and decided that they had better take their share and become rent seekers before someone else less deserving decided to do the same thing. See you guys later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.